And, and oftentimes it's when I'm at my loneliest that I meet my most interesting people. You know, mm. it's, it's when I'm at my most bored that I find the most interesting aspect of my surroundings. And it's when I'm completely lost that I, you know, sort of orient myself and become found in a way that I discover things that I wouldn't have discovered had I been following my Google map the whole time. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is the newest of my Vagabonding audio companion episodes where I dig deeper into the themes I explored in my book, Vagabonding. I take these episodes from my appearances on other people's podcasts where in answering certain questions about long-term travel, I cover interesting new ground and say things I didn't know I knew. Today's Vagabonding audio companion episode is remixed from Max McCoy's Looking Up podcast, which Max recorded from the road during his travels in Mexico. Max is 25 years old and he's at the front end of his travel career, and I still identify with my own 25-year-old travel self and the vulnerabilities that came with being that age. So a lot of what we talk about is how travel helps you find direction and inspiration in life when you're young or in a life transition. We talk about how your attitude towards travel is intertwined with your attitude towards work and money. We talk about how emotional lows can be lower and the highs higher when you're first starting out as a traveler. We talk about loneliness and boredom on the road and the role failure plays in a well-lived life. We talk about keeping a travel journal and the way travel lends itself towards a more spiritual worldview. We start by talking about the uncertainty and angst Max felt upon returning from his first trip to South America as a young man. Let's listen in. I came home from this trip in Colombia, and it was a month long and it was amazing. I grew a lot, I learned a lot, but I was a little sad. And it was because I felt like every time I would travel, I would save all my money, save all my coins, go travel, spend them, and then come home and kind of feel like I was starting over, if not starting on a negative. And I'm only 25, so I was around 22, 23 at the time. And it just felt like everybody was excelling in their career and growing and progressing. It wasn't until I found your book that it really gave me the words I was looking for as to why travel was so important to me, why it was so profound, what it had done to me internally. And you really helped me shift my thinking into shifting my life around and starting to think like, how can I make this an actual part of my life moving forward? So I'm just so grateful to talk to you and to be able to do so from Mexico feels like a very full circle moment. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, good to talk to you. I, I, and that's, that's a cool story. I think I remember being that age and worrying that I needed to, to get travel out of the way or that I needed, <laughs> or just worrying that I wouldn't be as employable, you know, if I spent so much time traveling. And it, it need not be a, a thing. So I'm glad, I don't know how you found my book, but I'm glad you found it because it, it addresses those issues because they're the same issues that I worried about at a similar age. Yeah, I don't know how I found the book either, but I always feel like books find us. But yeah, that's an interesting thought. The first time I did travel, it was Europe and it was definitely a feeling of, let me just get this out of the way. Like, let me, let me go be young and silly and, and then I'll come home and do my career. Do you think that's like a, a typical starting point for people in their early 20s, you know, when they first get introduced to this world of travel? Yeah, it's very American and specifically that Europe trip. I was different because I traveled <laughs> yeah. in, Asia, in Asia before I traveled to Europe. But that going to Europe as a young person, oftentimes as a college student and you know, air quotes, scratch that itch, you know, the idea that you, that travel is something you scratch so you can get on to your normal responsible life. It's such a common attitude in the United States. And so I think if you can realize that you don't have to scratch it, you can still, you know, integrate travel into your life in a way that really not just enhances your life, but makes you more employable in some ways is a good thing to be cognizant of. Yeah. In your own words, before we dive deeper, I'm really fascinated by this idea of 
you know, well, for me, again, I'm just going to continue to come back to my experiences because it's all I know. But travel was the thing that really helped me find direction, at least start, be the spark that like pushed me in the direction that would become my career, my thought process, like who I, how I viewed myself. It really gave me direction when I didn't have it. So in your own words, why is travel such a catalyst for one, finding ourselves and finding direction and then two, helping us, whether if we're lost or if we're in these like kind of life transitions as I was at that age? Well, I think travel is in the purest sense of the word, life's best education, if you let it be. You know, I think another, another thing about the U.S. is we often see travel as this consumer option instead of this life option. We see it as something that we buy and then we have fun and we, we do this activity and that activity. And, and that's great. But I think if you allow it to, travel can not just teach you all kinds of things about the world, but it helps you learn what you're excited about, you know. And I think in my own podcast, I did a, an episode about nostalgia recently. And nostalgia, weirdly enough, is not just for old people. It's like when you're a young person and you're in a life transition, that's an unstable time. And I think like being in your early 20s, as I was, and you were quite recently, there's this uncertainty and, and society is telling you there's certain things you need to do. And, and oftentimes it's like, we'll go to university and, and get a degree and that's fine. But oftentimes you can learn more and have as much fun or more when you're traveling. And so I think just there's something to be said for letting go and letting travel teach you what it can. You know, I think we're in this age now where we want to have the answers in advance because we can get so many answers, including answers about travel in advance, but just going into the world knowing that wonderful things are going to happen, but not knowing what they are yet is one of the best things you can do yourself for yourself in terms of education. Hmm. And why do you differentiate kind of the power between, you know, maybe extended travel? And I know you, I love how you differentiate. It doesn't have to be across the world travel for your first time. I know you did a lot of, I think you hopped in your van with a buddy and went through the US. Like, but why is it that you recommend or at least encourage longer term travel as opposed to like the westernized idea of a quick vacation? And then how do you kind of differentiate solo travel from kind of traveling with a group of friends? Again, kind of the differentiation between um, like a, a singular quick experience that I'm just going to knock this out and then kind of like a surrendering too. Like, how do you view that? Yeah, well, long-term travel allows you to reestablish your relationship to time. Again, breaking it out of this chopped up consumer zone that we're sort of taught. Even, even you know, there's this notion that it's good to optimize our lives. Well, that, sure, it's good to optimize your lives and be efficient. But sometimes the best lessons in life come when you don't really know what you're going to do. When you wake up and think, okay, I'm not sure what's going to happen yet today. And traveling for the long term allows you to do that. I think a danger of like a two-week vacation, not to knock two-week vacations, but you're trying to jam as much as possible into that time. You're optimizing your travels for efficiency. And in a way, maybe, you know, I don't blame people for doing that because they want to get their money's worth. But when you have longer to do your travels, be it a year, which is a common length, or, you know, six weeks or five years or however much, it allows you to not be trapped in that web of expectations and itinerary that can get in the way of a more organic and life-changing experience of travel. And you talk about solo. Yeah, you know, my first vagabonding trip was traveling around the United States in a van, van life before a hashtag van life, with a buddy of mine. 
I think that was important for me because I think if I was left to my own devices, I wouldn't have done it. I really needed a friend to plan it with and execute it with. But then since that time, I've done most of my travels solo. As I become a more confident traveler, I've done it more and more alone because when you're alone, you can sort of set your own itinerary. You can go where you want, when you want. If something surprises you, as it often does in travel, you can just pivot a bit and let those surprises dictate where you travel. And as you grow and reinvent yourself as you're alone, traveling alone helps you better enable that. And, and also travel alone may, forces you to be lonely every once in a while. You know, if you're with a buddy the whole time, you, know, you can just talk about things that happened a long time ago. Whereas if you're lonely, then you make friends and you try new things and you do things to get out of that shell that you otherwise might not. So I'm a big fan of longer term travel and solo travel for sure. Hmm. Yeah. There's a couple of ways I wanted to go, but Real quick, was that van, I think, was your first like travel experience, I've heard you say. Who were you before that, and who did you feel like you had become after that? Yeah, that's a good question. It was my first long-term travel experience. It was my first experience of just letting a journey breathe, and it, it lasted almost eight months. I think who I was before and after is best defined as I was uncertain before the trip, and I was confident after the trip in terms of what the potential for life was. Because I really thought that I was scratching my travel itch when I started that trip. I thought, I have to do it now. Um, I'll never be able to, I'll never have a better chance to do it. And there are advantages of traveling when you're young. I was 23 when I did that trip. But when I was done, I just realized that it wasn't as expensive as I thought it was supposed to be. It wasn't as hard or as dangerous as I thought it was supposed to be. And I realized that I had these options, that once I was familiar with long-term travel, I didn't have to be scared of it. I didn't have to to be superstitious about long-term travel. I didn't realize that it, that it was something that would take away from my life that I would be penalized for. It was actually something that enhanced my life and something that would make me a better person, but also a more employable person, a, a person with a stronger sense of who I was and where I was going. And I really think that that applies to a lot of people. I, you know, I became a travel writer and a journalist. People can do that in different directions. You know, my friend who I traveled on that trip with works for Microsoft now, right? Just a, a good old fashioned corporate job. But his day within that job, I think, is enhanced by the fact that he had these really interesting travels when he was younger. And he can now, he has three kids. He can travel with his family in a way that wouldn't have been possible had he not had that travel experience too. Hmm. You've come back to that idea of being employed. It made you more employable, more employable. Does that come up that you have found in like your audience and your, your readers as one of the kind of biggest limiting factors as to why they don't take the leap to travel more often is I can't get the time off work or I just can't afford to be away. Like, is, is that one of the biggest ones? It's a huge fear. Certain dangers can be a fear, you know, depending on what the news headlines are from year to year. But yeah, that fear of, is this the right time to take off? Is this the right time to not be working? What's happened, for better or for worse, is that that old punchier ticket factory employment that used to exist doesn't really anymore. And people who thought they were going to be employed in much the same way their whole lives, even if they aren't traveling, they're suddenly having to reinvent who they are as an employable person. You know, when the downturn happened in 2008 or when various things have shaken up the world, even, even the COVID epidemic, people can't travel immediately. But I've had a lot of people contact me and say, look, this has shaken up my world. I don't know why I was putting travel off the second I can get my 
you know, immunization I'm going to go because it made me realize how precious life is. And so, yeah, it's a huge fear, but more and more it's become less weird. You know, when I wrote Vagabonding, I said, put your travels on your resume. Why not? You know, and people thought that was really strange. Well, now we have digital nomads, you know, that people are literally working from overseas and they'll say, yeah, you know, I have all these skills that I wouldn't have were I not a traveler Mm -hmm. and people are less afraid to put travels on the resume now. Mm. You talked about loneliness a little bit, and I'm only three weeks into my travel right now. But and it, it had been like a, I've done trips in between, but for the last year and a half or so, I've been really like work focused and trying to build something sustainable so that I wouldn't have that experience I had coming home from Colombia, feeling like oh I gotta go get another serving job. And one thing I forgot about travel, it just was the you know the highs are higher, but for me the lows are lower. And uh, the loneliness piece has been a tough one, but it also has brought a lot of like learning and, oh yeah, like I'm relearning how to take care of myself. How have you kind of, how has that journey been for you? Because you've traveled more than, you know, anybody I know of. A lot of solo travel. You've gone to some of the parts of the, like, at least I can speak some English here if I need to. You've been to places where, you know, no one's speaking the language. You don't know the geography. I'm sure that loneliness got pretty deep. How, how have you found the best way to kind of navigate that and what has it kind of taught you? Well, one thing up front to keep in mind is that always makes you stronger. You know, Mm. we live in an age where we don't allow ourselves to be lonely. And so hence, maybe we fear it more than we should because we have a smartphone in our pocket now that we can text mom or our buddy or whatever, you know, we can get in a WhatsApp call to somebody if we feel lonely. Well, actually loneliness along with boredom, have always been a gift of travel, you know, that basically it, it forces you to pull on your own resources and, and deal with that. I remember the first time I lived overseas for an extended period of time, I was in Korea, I was working as an English teacher. And man, I felt bipolar because you were right, the lows can be really low, the highs can be really high, but man, the lows, I just, just hit me hard. And maybe a small part of me thought, gosh, maybe I should go home, but I'm glad I didn't because I just realized how tough I could be. And the more I do it, the better I get at it. And oftentimes when I'm lonely now in wherever, when I'm in Sri Lanka and feeling a little bit lonely, I think, oh yeah, this is like the hundredth time I felt lonely in this way, you know? <laughs> and, and oftentimes it's when I'm at my loneliest that I meet my most interesting people, you know? Hmm. It's, it's when I'm at my most bored that I find the most interesting aspect of my surroundings. And it's when I'm completely lost that I, you know, sort of orient myself and become found in a way that I discover things that I wouldn't have discovered had I been following my Google map the whole time. So lonely, mm. lost, and bored. Those are, believe it or not, your audience might think this is strange, but those are gifts of travel. Those, those can teach you so much, not just about the world, but about your own resilience and resources and ability to adapt. Wow. Yeah, that's so well put. That, self, that self-respect definitely builds and uh, you just come home feeling like you conquered so much, so many peaks and valleys. The peaks and valleys feeling... Well, the lower lows make the highs even more magical. And like you said it perfectly, sometimes um, just the other day I was feeling extremely lonely and I kind of went on this weird little walk and I bumped into someone and we had a day together and it just felt so surreal. Like, wow, I was just in this place and now I'm in this place. That's kind of one of the the magics of travel with that uh, ups and downs and all the turns and travel, like all that can happen in travel. I became, especially on my first trip, definitely reminded me of the way you put your, your van trip. I became definitely more prone to like spiritual beliefs and kind of because of this feeling that like I just felt so out of control and there was almost like there was something else happening and almost all these synchronicities were popping up and I just, I really felt like my spirituality began on that trip 
I don't think I've read much of you talking about this side of yourself. Has there been a spiritual side of yourself that has kind of been nurtured or developed through travel? Absolutely. And I think travel forces you into a more spiritual iteration of, of yourself. You know, I think under the umbrella of religion, we often make spiritual life abstract. You know, it's, it's sort of these, these units of learning or whatever. I don't want to knock religious traditions. I was raised in one, but it's almost like you avoid, again, you, you avoid those really tough moments that make you call on your own spiritual resources. I think I say in vagabonding that you can as, learn as much about your spiritual self when you have diarrhea on the bus <laughs> to Jerusalem as you do, you know, on the Via Della Rosa in uh, Jerusalem itself, right? So I think one interesting experience I had during that first van vagabonding trip was I stopped at a monastery in Massachusetts at uh, St. Joseph's Abbey. It's a Trappist uh, monastery. Like Thomas Merton, I don't know if you know his writing. He was a Trappist monk. He wrote a book called The Seven Story Mountain. It's pretty amazing. Mm. And so staying there, it didn't make me want to become a monk. It didn't even make me want to become a Catholic. But seeing those guys live a life of contemplation really gave me a perspective on my own on what has become my own spiritual life. It made me realize that you can be quiet. They have vows of silence there, which doesn't mean they can't talk. They're just not supposed to talk about dumb things, you know? And one funny thing is that all the monks wanted to talk as much as possible because they couldn't talk to each other. (laughs) But it, it makes you realize that being alone or being silent or being contemplative or just letting a moment happen without scheduling things too much is an important part of, of being alive, you know, just embracing the present moment. So much of all of these spiritual traditions, you know, including the, the Christian, the Catholic tradition that was at the monastery is about experiencing the present moment, letting the moment happen without obsessing about other things, past or future or other, you know, parts of the world that you can't control. And so that was a spiritual moment that I found at literally a religious institution doesn't always happen that way. But I think travel just allows you to see other ways of life. And it forces you into that moment. Again, we live with our smartphones and our overplanned lives in this web of past and future without really experiencing the present where travel just forces you into problem solving, it forces you into the moment. You'll you're be walking one moment and you're just so frustrated and you're so depressed about how things aren't going right. And then you'll see this amazing sunset or you'll see a, a Hindu parade that you didn't believe was possible. You know, that just suddenly you're, you're surprised by life. And I think that there's something really spiritual to that awareness of the moment and just sort of the, the gratitude for being alive that travel can remind you of. Mm, that was so well put. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, I mean, it ties back to your last answer, just the time of boredom or loneliness in a way is kind of a door to spirituality. At least it was for me. I like the quote, where the wound is, the light can enter or something like that by Rumi. And it, it reminds me of that, you know, those low points or the, the tired points or the bored points that can be the time that we all maybe crave for like contemplation and reflection. Speaking of, you're an amazing writer. I love how you speak. You're so well, um, you're well articulated. <laughs> As I talk about articulation, I can't even say it. Did, how was your writing kind of passion and craft built? Was it through travel? Because for me, I'm, I'm like a, a chronic journaler and that journey started on my first travel. I wanted to write down every detail that was happening. I didn't want to forget. And then it became this spiritual practice. And then I grew to love the craft. And now writing is something that I'm actively trying to do more and more of. How did that develop for you? Was it related to travel, if at all? 
Well, I think writing was focused by travel, that in a sense, hmm. when I was younger, I wasn't sure what I w- was supposed to write about. And that, that's a normal thing. When you're, when you're young, you don't yet know what your passions are. So when I was young, I thought maybe I should write about music because I was living in Seattle at the height <laughs> of grunge. I thought maybe I should write movies. And I, you know, screenwriting is an interesting thing. Also at the time, all this stuff about Generation X was a thing. And it's like, well, maybe I should write about my generation, which is sort of a dumb thing to, to try and write about. Because <laughs> who knows any, who can speak for their generation when they're young. And then suddenly travel gave me something to write about. And in my case, it literally, I write about travel. Vagabonding is about travel. But it doesn't mean that everybody who travels and writes, it has to be about the writing has to be about travel. It can be about development or engineering or um, agriculture or whatever they encounter on the road. The arc of my writing, I think, came from reading. You know, when I was 13 or 14, I would read Stephen King books and I would try to write Stephen King style stories. Now, I've published nothing that even remotely resembles Stephen King. I still like the guy. But those early trials and failures, basically, I was just harnessing my passion, which at age 13 was writing horror stories, right? Were it not for those horror stories, I wouldn't have developed into the writer who later wrote for his high school newspaper and then later wrote for his college newspaper and then failed to write about travel when he started traveling. But it was the failure that was such an important teacher, right? Mm. And so I think journaling is a great practice, not just for you, anyone who's listening, that it gives you a ritual. And in a way, a journal allows you to write as poorly as you want or as poorly as you can. It's (laughs) it's not for an audience. You're writing for yourself. But even when you're writing for yourself, you're putting together sentences. You know, if you're writing something and you bore yourself, well, then maybe you should find more interesting ways to write. And and in, in a sense, you're through writing practice like a journal. I teach classes in the summer and I tell my students this. You come into relationship with the written word so that when you read a good sentence in somebody else's writing, you think, oh my God, how did they do that? And pretty soon you're reading as a writer and you're writing as a reader in your journal and your writing practice gets better. Wow, that was really, I've never heard it put that way. Yeah, I'll underline and I'll quote, but it really, I think that appreciation didn't develop until my journaling practice had time to kind of grow and grow and grow. That's really interesting. How did you um, kind of structure, I mean, this is a one-on-one writing question. I've definitely like, this is a, I've gone from journaler to now appreciating it more as a craft than ever. How while traveling did you go about kind of structuring your days? Did you kind of build them around writing? Are you like a, you know, you have to write this many pages or this many words every day type of writer? Or how did that structure kind of look for you, especially on the road when there's so much movement and fluidity? Well, I'm more of a note taker than Mm. anything on the road. Oftentimes, I'm not really a guy who can write... I mean, I do write, I do try to keep a regular habit of writing, but my best writing is often done in bursts, right? So when I wrote Vagabonding, I wrote it in Thailand and I wasn't moving around a lot. I basically had an apartment in Renong, Thailand and I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that I wrote two hours a day in 10 different countries. And that's just my own creative style. Um, And so when I'm not in that situation, when I don't have my apartment to keep my like eight hour a day practice of writing, I take lots of notes on little notebooks. Let me see if I have it at my desk uh, here. Yeah, just like a little notebook that you can put in your pocket, right? And like a little astronaut pen. I, these days I, keep, I carry an astronaut pen. In fact, I have that in here too. And they don't take up that much room. But as I'm walking around and thoughts occur to me or I see something amazing and I know I won't remember it properly, 
I'll write it down. And of course, now that we have smartphones in our pocket, I mean, there's advantages to not taking your smartphone actually when you're walking around during the day because that can be a distraction. I don't usually get a connected account when I'm traveling. Um, I only use it on Wi-Fi when I'm back at my mm. hotel or guest house. But uh, the camera on your smartphone can also help be a part of the journal and note-taking process. Mm. If you see this amazing valley and you're not quite sure how to describe it, you can take a few pictures and go back to it and and talk about the features or a street in a city or where, wherever. But regardless of how, what you put on your audio notes or your, your camera on your phone, I think those written notes are key, even if it's just punching them into the note function of your smartphone. But again, I try to be independent of the smartphone, of just that exercise with your environment, of taking notes of, I guess, travel can, can be its own type of thinking. Um, you're outside of the usual habits that influence your normal type of thinking. And so as you're writing in that paper journal on the road, as you're taking notes and not telling stories yet or writing philosophies, but just taking notes, as you're doing that, your brain is working literally in a whole new way. And you can have ideas you never had before. What do you mean that your brain's working in a whole new way? Well, um, oftentimes I think we think that we have, I'm not a neurologist, so I can't tell you exactly how this works, but of course. We, get it, we get into habitual ways of using our brain in writing, you know, maybe because routine benefits writing, you sit down and, at your computer and you're writing certain ways. What will happen is oftentimes you, and by you, I mean me, will go off for a walk and you'll think of things and it's like, oh my gosh, I have to run back and write some more. That Suddenly your brain is not in a groove of trying to tap on a keyboard, suddenly your, group, your brain is in an environment, it's in a different environment, and it is encountering those same writing questions and problems from a completely different way. And I tell my students this sometimes, that you can plan your book or your essay all you want, but until you start writing it, you're going to be thinking in a different way. There's, there's your planning brain and there's your, your doing brain. Mm. And sometimes it's not until you're in the middle of those sentences that you're getting those epiphanies that make your writing so much more effective and meaningful than if you had just planned it. And so when I teach, I often have my students do writing exercises just to get them out of their planning brain into their writing brain. And I literally have them bring a paper journal and I say, look, you know, we're not keeping score. This isn't going to be your end result. I just want you to get words on a page because we spend too much time planning writing and not writing itself. And often they'll end up with stuff that's pretty amazing from those writing exercises. Uh, yeah, so I, could, I can't tell you neurologically uh, how yeah. that works. But literally your brain does work in different ways when you're walking or when you're writing than when you're just sitting and thinking about things. I think that's what fascinates me by writing is I love writing. I love the idea of putting out a book one day, but it's almost like a, a back end byproduct of the fact that I love writing that I'm like, maybe I'll write a book one day. I'm curious. I, I know you work with writers, you teach. What are some, like, I love the quote to write clearly is to think clearly. What are some other, what are some downstream benefits people can get from kind of taking in this writing practice, whether it's journaling, whether it's reflection or whether it's sitting down and trying to improve upon the craft of writing, what kind of other ways can writing influence your life and thinking? Well, it can help you make clear who you are. You can make sense of yourself that way. You know, we've, we've talked a little bit already about how travel can help you discover who you are, who you want to be, who you, what you love, what you, what you don't like so much, what you didn't realize existed in the world, and now you're coming to terms with it. Well, writing is one way to process that. And oftentimes, it's that extra little push. You know, it's the 
the tip in to use a basketball metaphor um, that goes that just brings you that extra couple centimeters into selfhood so sometimes i think you can be walking through the world as a traveler or at home and you feel like something important is happening in your life but until you articulate it until you sit down and go through that process of writing it down and thinking no that's not right and scratching it out and writing it some more that allows you to process it allows you to tip in those realizations that you haven't quite articulated yet and it really makes you a more complete person, a person who knows. I love that tip in metaphor. Yeah. Sometimes I'll almost be overwhelmed with how much I know I want to go home and reflect and write about if it's been days. I'm like, I need to go home and have some tip ins to really like integrate all these things I'm learning. That's a, that's a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. I think one thing about writing too is not to be afraid to show it to other people. I mean, obviously there's stuff in your journal that's going to be just for yourself, but sometimes we can get lazy in our own journals. And so um, if you show it to a friend and they're here, huh, what do you mean by this? And it's like, oh my God, I didn't articulate that. Or like, mm. yeah, this page and this page are boring, but it seems like there's a story you're not even telling and you're only hinting at on page four. And it's like, oh my God, right? Writing for an audience forces you to come to terms with what you might be hiding when you're trying to make sense with yourself. So that's another, another level, you know, that uh, writing is an excellent practice with yourself. But again, to tip in, even more showing that writing to somebody and saying, does this make sense to you? And, and if they're like, yeah, it means this. And you're like, that's not what I meant to say. And then you rewrite. So rewriting, that's another thing I bring with my students is that there's something to be said for the expression of words on a page, but there's also something to be said for the discipline of rewriting something for the fifth time until it truly evokes that clarity that you're looking for. Mm. That's, that's the part of writing I think uh, I'm stepping into that is, that's like the beast of writing is that refinement, that refinement, because journaling can be such a fluid process and I'm not really sharing it as I go about sharing a little more around my writing. It's definitely bringing out a different level of attention to detail. And, and I love how you put it. I wrote it down in one of your blogs. So writing can be a means of self-questioning and discovery rather than always like providing answers. I love using writing as a craft of posing the right questions and either for someone else or for yourself. I love how you said that. Yeah. Well, I think there's sort of this resume version of ourselves. We're, we're always trying to show our, this little encapsulated perfect version of ourselves. When in fact, we're at our most human when we are lonely, lost and bored or confused, or we don't quite know how we feel about a topic until we start writing about it and arguing with ourselves a little bit. And that's one of the, the glories of that old technology of, of the essay, for example. Like now we have social media. We're, we're sort of showing off for each other. We're trying to be right all the time. We're trying to be self-righteous a lot. When in fact, the essay says, look, I don't really know how I feel yet. Let's look at this. And that actually, one reason why reading essays is nice is it gives you the relief of thinking, oh my God, somebody else isn't sure either, right? Because life is uncertain. And it's through working through uncertainties that we make our biggest discoveries about ourselves and about each other. And we really learn to become broader, more compassionate human beings. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a really interesting process. You, you talk, talk about in your book, book so you're, you're a writer by profession. You talk about in your book that work, don't, don't travel because you work. You know, this is paraphrased, but work so that you can travel. How have you viewed your career? You know, I know it's been years since you've written the book. How is your career and how you view the, your career um, how do you, how have you kind of thought about that? What kind of box have you put your career in? Cause you've had a level of success as a writer that I think is admirable and a lot of people would aspire to, but you also write about 
I'm writing and I'm working so that I can travel. So how, how do you kind of think about that now? How has that thinking kind of progressed? Well, it's sort of become woven together. Like I've been doing it so long that it, it goes hand in hand. And I think that happens for most people, even if they're not writers, that if they, if vagabonding, if long-term travel is something that they value, then they just sort of find ways to balance it with their work life, their whole lives, you know? Mm. And I know a lot of really prolific travelers who do work that isn't super rewarding for them, but they're happy to do it because they know how much joy they're going to get out of their travels when they travel. And so I, you know, I get to do what I love and I wrote one book in particular that other people really love and like to talk about. And so I'm sort of lucky in that regard that literally I wrote a book about travel that makes people excited to talk about travel. And then I continue to make money from that and from associated ventures like speaking and teaching and stuff mm. so that I can, I can really balance uh, my years and, and no single year is the same in terms of how it's balanced in travel versus working. Um, but yeah, I, I think, and, and you're younger and earlier in the arc of your career, but I think a lot of people find ways that are unique to themselves to balance travel, their travel life with their work life. And then of course, there's also family life, you know, that some people have families and they, then that creates complications in regards to travel, but also joys in regards to travel. They get, it's something they get to share with their kids and they get to give their, their kids or their spouses, uh, you know, not just a, a different educational view of the world, but of their own relationships and the, and the way it can deepen through travel. You said it well, you wrote a book, it was very successful and you, you've been able to kind of, it, it just felt like you found, it sounds like you found a really unique lane that was very unique to Rolf, like uh, so many passions and interests combined with you were doing the prep work, you were working on your craft and it kind of pinnacled and it was a great moment. And I'm not saying that was your peak, but like that was a peak, an, an amazing peak uh, of an awesome career. What were some of the ingredients, you know, in someone who's, you know, again, like you said earlier in the career, a lot of my audiences too. What are some of the ingredients that you, looking back, can now highlight as like, this led to that being the success it was, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, a couple of things came to mind. One's about writing and one's about life. The thing about writing is that failure was, the, was my best teacher. You know, I, I, I since mm -hmm. have acquired a graduate degree, but when I tried to write a book after my first vagabonding trip and just bashed my head up against it and basically failed, you know, I wrote maybe 80,000 words and nothing came of it. And it was sort of soul crushing at the time. That was my best teacher that basically no amount of sitting in the classroom compared to just trying to write a book that did not succeed. And in a way, I'm so glad that Vagabonding is my first book and not that one, because that would have been a <laughs> dumb first book. Right. Um, so it was an important lesson. And then when we're talking about career arc type stuff, I've done well by Vagabonding and I've done well as a writer, but I'm talking to you from Kansas and not from, you know, Silver Lake or Brooklyn or some much more cool part of America, air quotes, cool part of America. Um, this is something I think Tim Ferriss calls it geo arbitrage, but it's the idea that I've chosen to live in places where, they, where I just don't have to spend as much money to maintain this balance of travel and work that I do. Fortunately for me, Kansas, I have family here. I have a lot of friends here. I enjoy being here, although I'm often gone uh, during the course of a year. And so I think realizing that I could go back to this unfashionable place that I sort of love and invest in property here rather than throwing my money at a more fashionable city that would force me to work harder for less free time, that was an epiphany. And not everybody's going to have a Kansas in their life. Some people grew up in big cities and, and feel more comfortable there. But I know a lot of people who 
they're they're in uh, you know Medellin, Colombia. You know that's the place where they they can make their money go further and and not be forced to make these choices between travel and work. And so that was a huge epiphany for me. Just like my biggest writing lesson was failure, I think one of my biggest lifestyle lessons was realizing that I could make my decision on where to live based on what was interesting and less expensive than other places that might have inhibited my ability to have all these choices that I have now. Mm, I love both those answers. What was that first book you were writing and then uh, decided not to go through with? Well, it was, it was, I think the title was called Pilgrims in a Sliding World, which is a, a reference to a Robert Creeley poem. But it was, it was a book of my first trip, that, that, uh, that van trip. Um, I went back and looked at it recently uh, just because it's been, I think, 25 years is it, yeah, 25 years since I took that trip. And just like, oh, that was not very bad at a sentence level, but I obviously had no idea what my audience was interested in. Like I wasn't very good at writing for that universal um, that I had become much better at by the time Vagabonding came in there. So that by the time I wrote Vagabonding. So I, I think I wrote some, uh, there was some funny stuff in that book, but it just wasn't a book that people could get excited about. And it's good to know that, you know, yeah. and it's, it's a fun record of that time in my life, but it's not something I would want anybody to read now. Yeah. No, it's a great reminder that, you know, you just, you learn by doing to a great extent and it's, it's almost corny at this phase, but to hear, to hear it a time and time again. And um, yeah, it's, it's always an important reminder. Um, you talked about just kind of like almost changing what you expected of yourself. Um, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but, almost like having a better perspective that you don't need to live in a glamorous city to be considered living like a very travel and free life. And I think a lot of people want money, myself included, because it equals freedom. And when you can have that perspective shift around freedom, then all of a sudden the money aspect is less of a hurdle. I really love that perspective. What would you say to people who, I'm thinking of like my sister in particular, she's probably going to listen to this. And you know, she loves travel. She is a vagabonder at heart and she's just in a nine to five. She's in the, the healthcare industry and she just doesn't see it being realistic for her. And for that, I can so resonate with the feeling, knowing that there's something out there for you, more to explore, but you kind of feel stuck. What are some ways for people like that, that you recommend we can start dipping our toe, shifting our perspective? Where can we start? Well, uh, she has a great advantage in that her brother is is literally in Mexico right now. So <laughs> exactly, she can she can dip her toe in the vagabonding world by visiting her brother. Or if you if your listeners don't have a family member um, overseas, give yourself a little a little mini vagabonding trip. Of and if you only have two weeks, don't try to go to ten places. You know, go to one place, go to one city. If you've dreamt of going to to Naples and and eating for two weeks. We'll go to Naples and eat for two weeks and walk around and have a great time. Just to realize, again, one of those lessons I learned on my first vagabonding trip, that it's just, it's just easier and safer and cheaper than you would have realized it sitting at home. And you know, you said your, your sister is in healthcare. Well, gosh, that's a portable profession. We're, ne we're never going to run out of jobs in that industry, right? Mm. So she can take basically, she can air quotes quit. She can take a mini retirement and uh, travel for a year and then come back. And odds are with the, with the profession in the healthcare industry that she can find more work. In fact, she could even mix, I'm not sure what specifically she does in the healthcare industry, but like if, if she's a nurse or a, or a doctor, then she can go and volunteer. She can mix travel with some volunteering using her professional expertise to give back in parts of the world where that expertise might be useful. So yeah, there's just, there's so many ways 
to do this. And it really starts with giving yourself permission. And sometimes that's a matter of tricking yourself into doing that by giving yourself two weeks and thinking, okay, I'm going to scratch that itch. And you'll realize you don't have to scratch that itch. I love that live example of you just giving me a hundred options for my sister, because that's, that's really what it comes down to is there's a million ways and, and you basically just live helped me not see it so binarily, you know, like, or if, if I was her, it's not like a separate thing. I'm not just going out for a little bit. You, you just totally integrated it and made it a part of my lifestyle. And I think that's, that makes travel a different level of fulfilling. Like when I, this trip is special for me because I am able to work. It doesn't feel so, you know, I'm able to progress some, some art and some creative projects that I'm excited about. And so it doesn't feel like a vacation. And that, I think that's special. So I love that you you just gave me the example of how to fully integrate, you know, a travel experience, even if it's just two weeks. Yeah. And, and whatever your discipline is professionally, odds are there's a new an interesting angle on that. You know, if, if visual art is your thing, then odds are the visual art is different everywhere you go in the world. If music is your thing, then you can, you can study a new instrument or you can find a new style of music. If you're in, if, if engineering is your thing, you know, you can talk to engineers in other parts of the world and see what their challenges are. If, if science is your thing, you can talk to, to scientists in your profession or you can, you know, give back. You can volunteer in certain ways and it just deepens your experience, not just of your profession, but of life in general. It's just, I mean, we're all given permission to be as creative as we want as travelers. Again, we don't have to be consumers who are like, okay, this is, this is my travel experience. And oh, I'm a little mad because I don't think I got my money's worth. Well, who cares about your money's worth? What, how can it deepen your life? How can you make this, make your life better, not just in happiness, but in making you a better worker or a better artist or whatever. It, it's fun. It's once you realize there's no limits on what you can do as a traveler, as a vagabonder, then every day is that much more of an adventure. And with international travel being limited right now, how do you recommend people kind of dip their toe into travel and this vagabonding mindset where they are, where like from home? I know you touch on that in your book and you've spoken on that many times. You know, explore your, explore your, your neighborhood or your home as if it was an exotic land. And it's amazing how all of us, including myself, I've been preaching this for a long time, don't know our backyard very well. And so basically suddenly you're having an adventure and it can be as just as simple as, like going to the grocery store th- with a route you don't usually take or going for a walk in a neighborhood you, you usually don't walk in or basically going for a walk in general. Walking is a great strategy overseas, but it can be a good strategy in your own neighborhood mm-hmm. and finding ways and, and improvising. I was, uh, my wife and I were traveling. We went to a place, we wanted to go to a hike here in Kansas and we found this amazing diamondback rattlesnake. I thought it was interesting and she didn't like it. So she wanted to stop hiking. So <laughs> we went to this other town. We found this nature trail in this other town and, and we hiked there and then we found a bar at another town. We basically had this little imp- improvised, va- because a rattlesnake showed up and ruined our hike, we, we improvised and instead of going on one hike, we went to like four different towns and did all these, all, all these different things. And so that was within an hour of where I am in Kansas, which is sort of the least touristed part of America. Um, and so just being open to it. And that's one of the lesson you can take home from travel is just realizing that any moment can be considered travel. And if you're willing to be a little bit different, even during a time of pandemic, again, be, be, be careful and be safe, but oftentimes you can go off for a hike in the fresh air that where you're less likely to have problems with the virus and have adventures that take you in wild new directions, even if you're within an hour of home. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that a past podcast guest said on here said like novel environments create novel thoughts. And that's almost kind of the, 
to go back to your uh, being a neuro, you know, a neuroscientist you, that you are explaining to me how our, <laughs> how our brains can change with travel and writing. And I think just your example right there kind of flicked that off for me. Like we could go off and find undiscovered parts of our own area and kind of create those new neural connections and just kind of be open and, and, and see what happens. You talked about your wife and um, I want to pivot real fast. So one of the limiting stories I've come across in traveling is it's harder to make deeper relationships because everything's so fluid and I'm going here and you're going there and relationships can be really magical, but they can be short lived. And coming back to that idea of loneliness, that is something I've been contemplating here. Uh, this is probably taking this in a more selfish direction. How did you meet your wife and how do you view this idea of deepening or creating deep relationships while you're being a man on the road, if you will? <laughs> Right. Well, here's the thing. I'm, I think I'm literally twice your age. I just turned 50. Yep. Exactly I'm, twice. I love it. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I don't feel 50 and, and hopefully you won't either when you're 50. But uh, uh, I literally met my wife when I was 49 during the pandemic. Wow. Beautiful. And so, yeah, no, it, it's great. And so I've had some, I've had some interesting and really fulfilling relationships internationally but it's, it's so ironic that I sort of met my person. You know, I met the person that I'm meant to be with in Kansas during a <laughs> pandemic. So it's crazy that, that it'll, it'll forever be our meet cute story that she was, I think a part of me always sort of hoped I'd find a Kansas girl on the other side of the world. Well, it turns out I met a traveler girl in Kansas. She was supposed to be in Berlin. I was supposed to be in Rome. We were both, you know, close to our parents because of the pandemic and uh, we met each other. And uh, now we'll spend the rest of our lives together. So it's an wow. amazing, that's a happy ending. I mean, it took me 49 years. I don't know if it'll <laughs> take you that long, but, but uh, I'm partnered up. Yeah, fingers crossed. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great part of the adventure. And um, it's something I couldn't speak to before because I didn't have this situation, but now I do. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing to, to have this new aspect to my life adventure um, when I'm twice the age I was when I started doing this. No, that's beautiful. I'm looking at your wall behind you and it looks like you have a bunch of mementos. I'm quite the sentimental type of person. Your newest book, uh, I believe it's the newest book called Souvenirs. I flipped through it a little bit. I love how you said that souvenirs can act as like, act as like a totem of faith. That, that was one line I underlined. Um, for so long, I had these mementos from Europe or from uh, Morocco or from Colombia sitting on my desk. And I'm, it, the more time passed, the more I, they almost didn't feel real to me, but that that word totem of faith was a really interesting line because that's what they felt like. It's like, it doesn't feel so, I don't feel so connected to these souvenirs anymore, but they give me faith that I could once again be in this state of awe and wonder and excitement. Why'd you write a book called Souvenirs? What's it about? What is the, the kind of ethos that you feel around these things that we collect? And, and as you said, they kind of are reflections of this like deeper parts of ourselves. Like, tell me about that. Yeah, well, there's a book series called Object Lessons by Bloomsbury, and uh, I pitched souvenirs with them because as a travel object, souvenirs are interesting because as I write in the book, I, I, I bought, like, when I first started traveling around Asia, I bought masks everywhere. And then there came a point where it's like, well, why the hell am I buying masks? You know, I, I didn't go to these performances. Well, like those masks certified that I was doing it. I dreamt of traveling Asia, and then those souvenirs helped certify that for me. So I realized that these souvenirs, um, our relationship to souvenirs transforms as travelers. They become the story that we tell to ourselves, but we're always changing, right? You know, so when I was a kid, I write about this in the book, I found this seashell in Lake Michigan. I was from Kansas. I'd never seen the ocean before. And I thought, wow. well, the big, 
the biggest piece of water I've ever seen is Lake Michigan. And it's not the ocean, but it's close to an ocean. And so <laughs> I'll keep this seashell for myself and maybe someday I'll see an ocean. And I don't know where that shell is anymore, but I've seen oceans, you know, that the way it was an object of faith that I would one day see an ocean, just like those masks in Asia were an object of certifying that I was finally taking my dream trip. And I don't buy as many souvenirs as I used to. I think first-time travelers buy more souvenirs than experienced travelers. And people can be snobby about that. But I think it's just that you're really certifying that this is true. When you're first traveling, you're buying things to, to remind yourself this is really happening. And then you put them in your house and, and they become an exciting part of this life story that you have with yourself. And so the souvenir wasn't something I bought as a souvenir, but it just reminds me of that adventure. Hmm. I love it. I love, can you tell me again about the, uh, the boat propeller? It was a little cut out there. Sure. Yeah. If you look behind me on the wall, one of the souvenirs I have on the wall, along with some masks and some puppet heads, which I bought as souvenirs, <laughs> is this boat propeller that wasn't meant to be a souvenir, but it's from a boat that I bought with a couple of other Americans and drove down the lake, the Mekong in Laos 21 years ago. Um, and this broken boat propeller really reminds me of the challenges and the adventure and the excitement of that trip. And so I think sometimes even more so than a journal, although I'm a big fan of a travel journal, those souvenirs in an intangible way can remind you of the excitement of certain travel experiences. It's funny. I was just looking at my desk. There's a, a statue of a monk that my mom gave me. This was after my travels in 1994 when I stayed at a monastery. And again, I didn't become a monk, but I think I talked about that so much that my mom said, I'm going to give him a little, a little statue of a monk. And so now it's on my desk and it reminds me to, to be contemplative. It's sort of a travel souvenir that I didn't buy for myself. So souvenirs can, are these interesting tokens that sort of deepen our life narrative and their little waypoints in our life journey that remind us of experiences that we have had and remind us of experiences that can be had again. So well put. I love that. Once we wrap up, I'll have you point to your book and where people can find you and all that. But I have a couple more last closing questions I want to ask you. One that I like to ask almost every podcast, given that I'm, I'm half your age, uh, I have so much to learn from you. <laughs> but looking back, what, what's a piece of kind of almost generic, you know, life advice, encouragement that you would give your younger self at age 25? Let's see. Well, at age 25, I I'd had my vagabonding trip. Yeah. Uh, it, would, it would probably be just that there's, there's no urgency. I mean, there's no urgency to become who you are yet. Um, because I'm, I'm half the age of 25 and I'm still becoming who I am. I think sometimes in our 20s, we feel like we have to call our shot and, and you know, find that career or whatever. You know, you don't want to be a dumbass and, and, you know, work counter to your own employability. But at the same time, you don't need to have, know exactly who you are when you're 25. Mm. And so, um, actually, I had finished my travels, but I was writing my failed travel book when I was 25. And I think if, if my 25-year-old self had known how essential that failed travel book was, he would have felt bad, less bad about how it was a failed travel book. You know, that, I guess that's another corollary to this is that failures are as important as successes, you know, and that ongoing um, success is, can be as meaningless as ongoing lack of success. I'm quoting somebody else. I think I'm quoting Donald Bartholm. But basically, failure is something that you can love because it's a part of your life too. And you can learn so much from it and you can help sharpen who you are through that process. Um, 
And I speak to that just because when I was 25, I was really stinging from the non-success of, of that first book I tried to write. Mm. But now it just feels so essential, even though I felt terrible about it at the time. It just feels like it was such an important part in making me the writer that I became. Wow. I love that question. As generic as it is, it always seems someone, I mean, my guests seem to always bring exactly what I need at the right time. And they're, what you just said resonates so much because at this age, there can be such a feeling of who am I becoming? What is my thing? Where can I plant a flag? There's a little bit of like a stress and a, an urgency to, to be who I am, to like, what is it? You know, And it's almost like that exact energy of trying to find a thing of what I am is almost pushing my experiences farther away from me at times. And so just to hear you put it that way, um, really resonated because I think a lot of people are so actively trying to find their thing. It just helps to almost take a step back and, and trust that you, you're not going to be the full epitome of who you are at 25, nor I'm sure at 50. It just is a continual happening thing. Yeah. A few years ago, I, I've, I've taught in a lot of environments, but I taught at Yale uh, several years ago and Yale students are very driven. And I kept telling them, look, your twenties are meant to be wasted. <laughs> and, and by wasted, I don't mean, you know, you have to sit with a bong on a beach someplace. I'm just saying that your 20s don't count. You know, it's, it's your time to make those mistakes and try something that you might not end up succeeding at because you're really, your 20s, they don't count. It's a great time to sort of smear paint on the palette of life and, and see, what, see what the picture amounts to. I love that. It, it just takes a weight off our shoulders when we think we, we have to have it all figured out. And then the last question I like to ask, my podcast's name is called Looking Up. When you hear looking up, what do you think of and, and what comes to mind? Well, this is, I mean, if we were just know what popped into my head, um, that, was the, that was the theme of, uh, of my church when I was a kid. So it reminds, <laughs> me, it reminds me of St. Andrew's Lutheran Church when I was a kid, looking up and reaching out. Um, mm. Although it's interesting, metaphorically, it's it, looking up, reaching out obviously means lending help to people in need, but looking up means, I think, looking beyond yourself, right? looking to that spiritual realm that is above your own corporeal self. So I guess I, I thought of, a, of an old catchphrase from a church I haven't been to in years and years, but um, it was a pretty smart catchphrase that basically seek a look up allows you to seek a more spiritual version of yourself and reaching out. I know that's not your podcast <laughs> reminds you to give back in life because life can be good to you and it's good to spread that bounty. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts as remixed from my appearance on Max McCoy's Looking Up podcast. More information about the things we mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. Deviate is produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.